0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith Weekly.
1: Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up, and then we're going to talk about January 6th panel going primetime tonight, and then we're going to discuss the testimony yesterday from parents in the Valde shooting massacre that happened a couple of weeks ago, and then we're going to talk about the SBC Report the Southern Baptist Convention gets caught in lies and deceit. And then we're going to talk about a heat dome rising above the southern United States. And then later on the pod, Autumn and I are going to sit down with Reverend Aurelia Pratt of Peace of Christ Church. She's got a new book out called A Brown Girls Epiphany, Reclaiming Your Intuition and Step Into Your Power. And it's a delightful interview. So lots going on in the pod this week, so stay tuned.
2: Arms folded, feet pacing the floor. It's written all over your face. The body doesn't hide our true feelings. It disregards promises made to keep the peace or just keep it to ourselves. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, host of the Raceless Gospel podcast from Good Faith Media. We're giving our listeners a hand when discerning body language. That's our focus in season three. The church is called the body of Christ, so what does our body language say about perennial and pressing hot button issues? What's costing us an arm and a leg? Who do we give the cold shoulder and keep at arm's length? When have we put our foot in our mouth or turned a blind eye? Why are we still sitting on our hands? Where do we toe the line? And why is the kingdom that is coming not on the tip of our tongues? In season three of the Raceless Gospel Podcast, we'll address these questions in eight episodes, and I hope you'll be all ears. The Raceless Gospel Podcast is looking at body language. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Episode one drops on May 5th. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org.
1: Autumn, what's going on this week?
0: What is going on this week, Mitch? My body is here, but my heart is still in Hawaii. <laughs> I, uh, you know, settling back into normal life, getting kids going 400 places at once. Um, I'm just trying to, like, you need to keep a little Christmas with you. I'm just trying to keep a little island with me keep every day. Keep a little That's... island with you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. What about you?
1: Oh, just uh, trying to, to get through uh this month, uh, we've got a lot going on in our house. We've got our youngest son back from college for a week before he heads back off to Boston for a uh, an internship that he has scheduled. So just uh, spending some time with him, hanging out here at the house, and just trying to, to stay cool from this heat. Uh, we've had some storms here move through central Oklahoma the last couple of days, and they have been gully washers, to say the least. <laughs>
0: Yes. I have had water moccasins in my backyard. Oh my so
1: gosh. Oh my goodness. I know. That's I sad.
0: know the creeks, the creeks are rising, Mitch. And so I've told the kids, you can go outside, but you have to have your rain boots on.
1: <laughs> no doubt, <laughs> Not either.
0: because of the water, because
2: of the snakes. snakes
1: exactly right. So, well, speaking of weather, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the recent reports, but uh, apparently next week, a heat dome is going to settle, uh, over the lower 48, as they say, and it's going to get hot autumn for June, mm-hmm. uh, Setting records in Arizona, some predictions are 118 in the <sighs> desert. Uh, that That's a, it's a dry heat, though, Autumn. <laughs>
0: you, you know I'm a heat lover lizard person. I love it. I love the heat. I love the sun. But 118 sounds a little balmy for me, even. <laughs>
1: uh, but uh, it's just absolutely crazy. You know, it, it seems as though each and every year... Uh, the triple digits edge closer and closer to May. And just, uh, it's really disheartening. You know, we've got a lot going on in the world. In fact, we're going to talk about a lot of those issues today. But the thing we cannot neglect is calling our attention to uh, global warming. I mean, it is the number one issue that should be on everybody's plates because if we continue to see these, they're not anomalies anymore, they're common. They're they're common instances. These
0: extremes in weather, both hot and cold and dry and wet, like all of these weather extremes are accelerating.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, the the thing that, and we've talked about this here before, the thing that's so devastating about this, you know, it's an inconvenience for you and I, uh, people who live in America, because, you know, we can turn our AC down, even if there's brownouts, you know, we, we spend a couple of hours without AC or electricity, and then we turn it back on later that night. But I was reading an article yesterday in the Washington Post about um, a family in Africa that lives by one of the major rivers there, and they've lost their home because of rising tides. Mm. And you know, they just they, they're trying to find another place to live, but they've actually lost their home, it's been in their family for generations because of rising sea tides. And so, it just, it, it's just it's just it's heartbreaking. Um, and and so, we need to be doing something about it. But just a reminder this week, as you're sweltering down here in the lower 48, that uh, we need to be doing something about uh climate change and global warming. So, to say the least, so.
0: Stay hydrated, check on your elderly uh, neighbors and family members, and uh, if you have a local um, nonprofit that supports people experiencing homelessness, maybe drop off some Gatorade and bottled water, some fans. Uh, Let's think about folks who maybe don't have the privileges that we do during this time.
1: Absolutely. That's a good word. Speaking of trying to change things, uh, lots of debate in Washington, D.C. this week, uh, hearings going on uh, at the Capitol regarding uh, the Uvalde uh, shooting that happened a couple of weeks ago yesterday in a hearing that we heard from parents, uh, the single pediatrician in Uvalde uh, about what he encountered and what he saw when little bodies came into the hospital and we actually heard from one of the students who testified that she smeared blood on herself from a fellow student just to, to survive the incident and her calling 911 and police not showing up till an hour later but it was heart-wrenching autumn I don't know if you heard any of it or read any of the the testimony yesterday but it's just it's just it, it just breaks your heart it infuriates you because it's been so many years since Sandy Hook. I don't mm-hmm. understand how we as a country find this acceptable. And we have we 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 express outrage, we demand action, and we hear the same thing from certain politicians and people in our our communities that there's n- we shouldn't abolish the second amendment because there're little babies who are dead.
0: mm mm-hmm. Mhm. They, but some of those same politicians sure to get fired up when um, someone with a, a weapon tried to head for Kavanaugh yeah. the other day. Right. I mean, they seemed real swift to action in that situation, and so did the police. Yeah, Absolutely. So, really interesting there. And, and no, to be totally honest with you, I have four kids who are in public school. We are a, not a gun family. Um, We have lots of Nerf guns, and that's about the extent of it, maybe a super soaker or two. But I honestly have to just check out. Yeah. I, I know that's privilege, but I, the Sandy, I have a daughter who's the same age as the Sandy Hook babies who were who were killed. in. I mean, they're they should they should be learning to drive right now. They should be studying for the ACT. They should be entering their sophomore slash junior year of high school. Um, and and that's how long that's right. how long my heart has been breaking about. I mean, I also was in high school when Columbine happened. Right. Um. And I mean, like our like our friend Kate Campbell says, a change should have come by now. Yeah, should, it should have. have. I'm going to vote accordingly, and I am going to be informed, and I'm going to be informative when the opportunity, you know, presents itself. And that's sort of the extent of my involvement in that story right now.
1: Yeah, the testimony that came from the uh, the student and the parent and the pediatrician yesterday was just. Um, I really don't know what if there's any words to explain it or to characterize it because heartbreaking and infuriating really doesn't do it justice to to hear them talk about what happened that day. And when the pediatrician described the condition of the bodies when they arrived Mm -hmm. at the hospital with some of the children being decapitated from an AR-15, why in the world does someone need an AR-15? A, a general solution they
0: they don't they don't that's the answer, and you heard they politicians this, this week yeah. with uh, who
1: posed that question uh some reporters asked some of the some Republican congressmen and senators about that and and you know what their answer was
0: It's gonna make me mad, I'm sure
1: that people in their district use a r fifteens to hunt gophers.
0: no, you don't <laughs> you use a bB gun to hunt a gopher. And, I grew up in a hunting family. You don't need an AR-15. I
1: mean, in vermin, it, it, it was it was just I mean, it was such a ridiculous ridiculous answer, and and it just it it sent me back to the Constitution because the, you know you, you hear politicians talk about we don't need to abolish the Second Amendment when these things happen. Well, we're not abolishing the Second Amendment. In fact, we're trying to enact the Second Amendment because you know what the Second Amendment actually says, literally, and I'm reading verbatim what it says right now. A well-regulated militia being necessar- necessary to the security of a free state, the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The whole amendment is set in the context of a well-regulated militia. And so, you know, it, do people have the right to bear arms? Yes, yes. And I am not anti-gun. I don't have guns in my house. I don't really want to be around them. But that's just me. I don't like Pepsi either. But, uh, but this whole mindset that they should be able to, to own these kind of weaponry is absolutely ridiculous. Because it literally says a well-regulated militia.
0: Regulated means we need to have some restrictions.
1: 100% hundred percent. So yeah. I hope that there's something that can come. I mean, and, you know, it sounds like the bipartisan commission is working on it. It's not going to go as far as many of us hope, uh, but uh, it is a step in the right direction until we can, we can ban these things from our culture because they are just absolutely, there's no, no reason whatsoever for a private citizen to have one of these. Well, it seems like we were just talking about bad news because we're going from one story to the next. Uh, we have not talked about the recent report from Guidestone Solutions about the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, Guidestone released their report uh, a couple of weeks ago and revealing that all the way back to in the 1960s, the Southern Baptist Convention had been covering up ministers and leaders within the convention who have conducted sexual abuse on women and other people uh, under their purview. So it was eye-opening, it was earth-shattering, Many of us uh, who have kind of kept track from the, uh, kept track of the Southern Baptist Convention, I at one time was a Southern Baptist uh, until I decided that they had left me a long time ago. Um, really wasn't surprised by this, kind of surprised about the enormity of it, but certainly not that this was happening because we've been hearing it for a long time. And finally, it's been validated that, yes, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention have been covering up Uh, abuse for decades.
0: Yeah. One of my uh, favorite morning shows growing up uh, was the Kid Craddock morning show out of DFW. And he used to do a segment um, about the way that news covers events like um, the Friday after Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. They would go and like, you know, interview people who were at a mall like, oh, there's people lining up to buy cheap toys the day after thanksgiving right. and he called it duh news like duh like <laughs> duh. of course this isn't news this happens every year mm-hmm. that's how i feel about the sbc thing and that is the most radio edited response that i can give you
1: oh uh, yeah I, and I, I'm it's with just you.
0: it's it, it's ridiculous it's yeah. steeped in patriarchy and purity culture and um And it's all about, uh, shame and taboo and power dynamics. And we don't believe people when they tell us things happen and we glorify leadership, especially, um, in that segment of faith. And, and we set them in a space where they are, um, they're untouchable. It doesn't matter what they do. We're to forgive and we're to keep moving on and we're to get over it. And uh, spoiler alert. That's not a healthy situation for anyone. Yeah,
1: no, I agree. Uh, the Southern Baptists meet next week uh, for their annual convention. Uh, there's, they're expecting thousands and thousands of people uh, to be at that, and this is going to be the number one topic of discussion there at their meeting. And I, we have already been getting word from uh, across the country that Southern Baptist congregations are outraged by this news and are actually withholding funds now from the Southern Baptist Convention, and some people uh, believe that this might be the possible beginning of the downfall of the Southern Baptist Convention. And and I don't know about that. At the very least, I hope it is a big uh, light onto their theology and the way they practice their theology and ecclesiology, and uh, I hope that it it embeds some real significant change in their convention of the way they do things. So, because yeah, it's,
0: it's an, it's a nice step to withhold funds. Um, mm-hmm. It's a really easy place to point a finger and yeah. say, look at what's happening over there and right. look like, what they're hiding. I think what every single person needs to do, whether you're a Southern Baptist or affiliated in any faith congregation or community um, is to, to pause where you are and to check in with yourself and see what you're doing to be complicit in things that lead to and abet abusers
1: Yeah, absolutely. if you're
0: aiding and abetting abusers whether it's omission of truth whether like it's like we talked about not believing people not, not being a safe space for potential victims to come forward educating our youth and children to be um, aware of what's going on um, I think it also uh, withholding fence is great but we also have to do the hard work involved in making actual change
1: absolutely couldn't have said it better myself um. Well, Autumn, are you going to grab some? We are recording this uh, episode on Thursday of this week, and so are you going to be grabbing some popcorn and a cold beverage tonight to watch the January sixth uh, hearing as they go prime time.
0: So I don't really know what's happening. I'm sorry. I've been in like summer floaty land with my kids. So t- uh, explain to me like I'm seven, what's happening tonight? Uh,
1: well, a bipartisan uh, uh, hearing has been going on throughout the summer. And yes, all the only reason it makes I've it bipartisan is that uh, representatives Adam Kingsinger and Ken Singer and uh, Liz Cheney uh, decided to be a part of uh, the hearing. Um, others on the, the Republican side uh, did not want to be a part of it because they said it was skewed. But at any rate, they've been working uh, for uh, quite a while now, uh, gathering testimony and evidence uh, regarding the January 6th insurrection. And uh, they are going to be going primetime tonight to begin to lay out their case about what happened. And preliminary reports are that they are going to put the former president, Donald Trump, at the center of of this effort to overthrow a free and fair election. He put himself
0: at the center of it.
1: Right, right. Well, he did. They're
0: just like calling calling it to light. Okay, understood.
1: that this was not something that just happened... Uh, that it wasn't about it wasn't about a bunch an emotional reaction on January sixth and people just got overhyped, but this was a deliberate attempt to overthrow an election uh, by an elected official so it's going to be interesting to see what uh, comes tonight uh, I hope that they they lay out their case and do it articulately and that there's evidence to back it up um, you know it, I, I wish it would have never happened, but it did. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to to know the truth of it. The American people deserve that.
0: Mm-hmm. We do. And it's important to know the truth about this. It's also important to set a precedent that this right. is not going to be tolerated. We've got to nip it in the bud, as Barney Fife would say on <laughs> the Andy Griffiths show. <laughs> nip it in the bud. We've got to send a message that we see this and it's not going unnoticed and we cannot sit idly by um, and pretend like this wasn't a big deal because it was. It, it was shook big. our country and we cannot sugarcoat that.
1: Yep. So uh, we'll be talking about it uh, over the next couple of weeks as uh, they roll out the evidence uh, and their case uh, against the former president, as well as those who participated in the insurrection on January 6th. Well, Autumn, you and I had the distinct pleasure this week of sitting down with Reverend uh, Aurelia uh, Pratt of Peace of Christ Church. She's got a new book out, A Brown Girl's Epiphany, Reclaiming Your Intuition and Step into Your Power. And it was just a wonderful interview. We had such a good time with her.
0: It really was. And I mean, Mitch and I have been sort of the doom and gloom uh, brigade this uh, first half of the episode. I hope that you'll stick with us because Aurelia truly has some um, some positive, some hope, some, some future for what happens after you deconstruct. And she brought up some things that I haven't thought about before. And I, I'm really excited to get my hands on her book. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, stay tuned. It's a great interview and uh, you're really going to enjoy it marvel at Pacific Coast wells, wonder in rainforests, explore wild coastlands and towering cliffs. Join Good Faith Media for a unique and immersive experience in the Pacific Northwest and Olympic National Park. Enjoy engaging conversation with your small group of adventurers led by our team, which includes a journalist, historian, and theologian. Join us July the 23rd through 30th. Learn more at faithexperiences.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Austin, Texas. Reverend Aurelia Pratt is the pastor, writer, paradigm shifter, and sacred space maker. She is an Imago Day enthusiast who finds real joy in helping people live into the fullness of their God-given divine image. She is the author of a new book, A Brown Girl's Epiphany, Reclaim Your Intuition and Step Into Your Power, which is currently available wherever you purchase your book. Aurelia is the lead pastor as well as the founder of Peace of Christ Church. She is the co-creator and co-host of Nuance Tea Podcast, where she is redefining what it means to be a clergywoman of color. She is currently chair of the board of the Nevertheless She Preached Conference and co-chair of the Religious Liberty Council for the Baptist Joint Committee in Washington, D.C. Aurelia is also a licensed master's of social work who currently serves as the chair of the board of advocates at the Diana Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University. She regularly contributes articles to Progressive Spirit, Alliance of Baptists, and our very own Good Faith Media. Aurelia, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. It's great to have you.
3: Wow! Thanks
0: for having me.
1: <laughs> well, that was we're quite- just
0: glad you had time. Between <laughs> was a lot.
1: Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's an impressive resume. I mean, good night.
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I need to take some of that out. That sounds a little bit ridiculous. <laughs> if
1: no, you're doing no, no, it, you no. need credit for it. That's exactly assignment. right. That's exactly right. So, well, first of all, congratulations on the book. Uh, you sent us a, a copy of it. It is fantastic. been working through it the last couple of days. I'm just, uh, just really inspired by your writing and your storytelling. I just, it's just, it's just wonderful. So, uh, first question out of the baddest. What inspired you to write this book?
3: Oh well, I. It started out as just me writing in the privacy of my own home in the early mornings, writing some personal essays, which you really get a glimpse of those that, those early essays I wrote on my own in the first half of the book where I'm talking about my experiences with racial trauma growing up in a very um, kind of modern-day segregation-type environment in rural North Louisiana and what it felt like to exist in my particular identity and just processing some of those experiences. That's some of what I'm talking about in the book, but that's how it kind of started was just my own need to process through these stories and find healing through processing and kind of recognizing that they happened and putting them on paper, probably for the first time ever in my life. And then that just kind of
0: turned into a book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are so glad you did. It is fantastic.
0: So in the introduction, you mentioned a saying your grandma had, remember where you came from. What is, what did it mean to you then? And what does it mean to you now?
3: Yeah. Um, well then she used to say this to all of us, her kids, her grandkids, it was sort of like a literally remember who you are, like check yourself. Don't, don't get too good for your roots. Mm -hmm. Um, and we just, of course, as each generation has come along in my family, we've hopefully all found a little more healing, a little more stability, a little more improvement, um, in every way. And, and and that's because of the people who came before us and enabled us to have, you know, more opportunities and more access. But she was always about remembering where you came from and not being wasteful, eating everything on your plate, finishing, <laughs> if you opened a bottle of water, finishing it. And, um, but at the same time, there were a lot of ways where she you know, shared that. And it was very annoying for us and kind of, you know, and so I think about my grandma and how much of a thread is woven about her throughout this book. And I, I just, it's interesting because I'm always like, well, she wasn't perfect, but I, I guess it's probably easy to read it as this really wise person. <laughs> and she was, and um, she really was.
1: Okay.
3: Um, but I also just want to acknowledge that, yeah. you know. None of us are perfect. And-, yeah,
1: and I want to follow up on that because, you know, it, I've heard that before. I've heard it in my family uh, growing up. And there's a lot to unpack with that simple but profound statement. You know, as a woman of color, um, you know, I'm, I've am i got Native American heritage and Muscogee Creek, and I think people of color understand the process of assimilation more than, other folks in our culture. Um, there are a lot of things, out, I mean, even outside of the traditional assimilation of white culture. But there are a lot of factors within the culture these days that push people to assimilate into some kind of idea, whether that is a type of Christianity, uh, a type of cultural nuance that one must exist uh, where they where they call home. What do you see as? I mean, because I, I really do think this is important. to remember your roots. Remember your heritage. Remember your lineage. What are some of the dangers, do you think, that people face when it comes to an attempt by culture to assimilate us into ways that we really weren't created to be?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we're well, just thinking of how that question resonates with me personally. You know, and in this book, I talk a lot about feeling this unbelonging because I'm in this in-between space which a lot of Latina people can relate to in various ways I'm learning but I grew up really disconnected from those roots and that was a product of assimilation because my grandmother left her home her family and moved to Chicago migrated to Chicago and then my dad was you know in an environment where he would be punished if he, if he spoke Spanish. So him and his siblings never learned the language and then that they didn't have the language to teach to their kids. Um, so to me, I never learned language. And then by the time I had kind of come up in rural North Louisiana, not only was I disconnected from, um, language and disconnected from community, but I also felt, a need to also distance myself from it because I was teased for it. Mm -hmm. And so then when I grow up and I become wise enough to realize the beauty and the importance of my roots and my story and my background and embrace it, there's all this healing work to do. And so it's interesting how this idea of assimilation can not just affect one person, but can affect generations of people and, um, really require a lot of healing work to be done to overcome it. And there's still so much lost. I mean, for me to learn Spanish at this point is, (laughs) I mean, maybe one day I will, but it's just an uphill battle. It's, you know, it's just the world that I, I live in doesn't really lend itself to, um, to accessing the language in the way that I might have if my, Dad never felt like he needed to be disconnected, or my grandmother never felt like she needed to be disconnected, which right. was all a result of assimil- assimilation.
1: Yeah, I, I would. I'm with you because I would love to learn Muskogee Creek, but this 52 year old brain is not going to <laughs> let that be accomplished whatsoever. So, uh, you know, and, and you talk about that in part one of the book. Uh, you write about stepping out of these harmful paradigms. In fact, you write the path of self liberation does not have a universal formula. And there certainly is no blueprint for it. Instead, claiming our God-given inner authority requires listening and trusting ourselves. In other words, we desperately need access to what you call intuition. So unpack that for us a little bit about what, what do we need to know about our intuition and why is it so important to us?
3: Yeah, and I'm sure this will not resonate with everyone, but it will resonate with the people who need it. This mm-hmm. message, some people already may feel, you know, that inner confidence for whatever reason, but for me, speaking from the place of my experiences and my particular identity and context, um, and my inner landscape, the, the idea of trusting my own intuition is something that is radical and is something that I have been disconnected from whether it's because I didn't learn to love myself properly. So therefore didn't learn to trust myself and value my own voice or whether it's through the church and the doctrine that were that many of us inherited through evangelicalism, where there's a lot of deny yourself, your heart is deceitful. And especially, you know, as a woman feeling like you need to be small and you need to be quiet. And so all of that over and over and over over the course of your life makes you distrust yourself and makes you compartmentalize, okay, is this God? Or is this me? Is this God? Or is this me? And actually, that's not how it works. Like, in in my opinion, God dwells within us, the spirit of God is within us, we're made in God's image. And we can trust ourselves a whole lot more than we even realize. And even for those people who are confident already, supposedly, um, I think that there's a lot of inner, deep
0: inner knowing that we're disconnected from.
1: Mm, I love that. Mm -hmm.
0: In chapter two, you address shame and trauma, which are definitely part of that, you know, that that you're talking about, Um, making yourself small and and not trusting yourself is laced with shame and trauma um, and trying to avoid shame and trauma. You write, the shame around my name lives on the surface as an exposed shame that anyone can press. When this happens, it elicits an immediate trauma response. For you, it was your name, but what what other human buttons um, have you seen? And do you do you think folks experience?
3: Well, I, I really—it's kind of like the self liberation journey. Not having a blueprint, we don't know what people's triggers are, and that's why I call them shame buttons because you don't realize you're pressing them. Um, I mean, I'm trying to think of something right off the bat but I mean, I can't really speak for other people. It's what I'm, when I talk about that, it's something that's so unknown. I mean, we all hopefully have the ability to be empathetic and to be aware of others and to be mindful of how we engage with people and hopefully assume that, you know, we need to be thoughtful, but these shame buttons are things that no one would know. Um, Like if, I don't know if someone makes a joke about something in like, because I'm from Louisiana, so I didn't even grow up in Texas and there's a lot of Mexican culture in Texas that I didn't grow up with. And sometimes I don't know what certain foods are and Mm -hmm. someone who is white or you know not brown they'll make a joke like aren't you mexican you know and it's just like a joke and it really is lighthearted and i will literally start crying on the spot (laughs) because (laughs) it hits on something so deep and they have no idea and I think everyone has things like that, just little mm-hmm. things that trigger. And maybe tears isn't what it triggers. Maybe it triggers anger, maybe or tri-
0: withdrawal. Yeah, you, know, you don't know you've hit somebody's button, and they until until you hit it, right? And it's too late. Right. And so it's it's so sensitive, and it's something that
3: other people can't anticipate. And that, for me, that's why it's a part of your work mm-hmm. to to search what was that, what happened there, and what is it what is it leading me to in my own healing assignment from this trigger? (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And what are some advice that you you have for those triggering moments? Uh, I mean, when, because it's happened to me in the past, Uh, you know, a couple of years ago I was in a church uh, in the South and I was uh, talking to a group and this man came up afterwards and I don't think he meant anything by it. And he was trying to be, um, I don't think he was trying to be funny. He was just trying to connect with me somehow, but he was trying to be cute, I guess. And he talked about, he had a relative that was an engine as well. And it was like, really? You're, you're going say that? Yeah. <laughs> and it was right. like, uh, it was just, it was really strange. And I had this, this visceral reaction to it. I mean, at first I was kind of taken aback, but then I got angry about it and then I just kind of got hurt by it. Uh, that that uh, he felt like he, that, that was an appropriate way to, to speak to me. It was just, it was, it was odd. So when we find ourselves in those positions, what advice do you have for us uh, to, to how to deal with that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think finding safe community to process is really important. Um, for example, our church just started a BIPOC Meetup. I wish there was a better way to say that quickly, but uh, a meetup for black, indigenous and people of color in our community. And it's a predominantly white community. And, you know, I've thought about, I mean, we don't have pushback in our community over that, but I could see people saying, well, why do you get a meetup? What if the white people were having a white meetup? And it's, and it's like, no, there's a particular lived experience that happens. And you really do need other people to live in complete honesty about some of those things. So for you experiencing that comment, maybe maybe certain people wouldn't understand that, but people of color would 100% understand what goes through your head where you try to justify, well, they didn't have bad intentions and well, this and that and actually no, like you you experienced harm because you've experienced previous harm and that's worth being in a safe place to process and, and, you know, not let, not let your body and soul and mind and spirit ab- absorb the harm and just mm-hmm. keep going. Like we usually do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so I think community is really important. Yeah. I agree. And I
0: realize I'm, I'm speaking this as someone who is very Anglo. Um, I have a friends who are, you know, they are married to, to a person of color and they are raising children who are children of color and they don't have the same lived experience. And so I could see a group like the one you're talking about being sometimes informative and obviously there's sometimes a need for a space for people who have had a shared lived experience, but I could see that also being a space for people who are trying to raise and be a safe place for folks and just be a, a, a listener to have some ears and to close our mouths and to just listen and believe the stories of people's lived experiences. Yeah. Thank
3: you for sharing
0: that. Yeah.
1: I agree. Well, I mean, you were doing really great in the book, and then you went from preaching to meddling because you started talking about Uh-oh. hierarchy within Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> and you yeah. you address the topic really brilliantly, and uh, you I mean you you just point out all of the hypocrisies that Christianity is facing throughout the years, as well as today specifically. In fact, you write specifically. Christianity has long been its own hierarchical system, using harmful biblical interpretations to sustain its power and suit its own needs. You go on to write, Jesus showed us how this liberation work has, done, has been done because his entire existence was a rejection of how power is typically defined. So let's talk about hierarchy, because it is one of the biggest problems we face today. so unpack that for us author
3: (laughs) wow it's so hard because that chapter i think it's chapter four maybe but it's it that that entire chapter is what i thought the whole entire book was going to be originally and then i ended Mm -hmm. up shifting everything and everything changed and i put everything that i ever write about in one chapter so it was really hard for me to um to do that and and, but i think that what i really want is for people who usually these are triggers right here speaking of triggers these buzzwords Of hierarchy, white supremacy, patriarchy, feminism, um, all these buzzwords that people hear immediately trigger a a response, whether it's a political, a partisan um, uh, association, which then kind of determines where people go with their own narrative of how they're gonna engage it or not engage these topics. And so my goal in talking about these things is to try to get people to move, like come into an awareness that they, that these buzzwords are, are impacting how they enter in or don't enter in and then move past that beyond that and into a real conversation, which really is just about hierarchy in the end and how these different power systems are not helping any of us, they're hurting all of us, and they're antithetical to the ways of Jesus. So I don't know if that's <laughs> what you're wanting. Mm-hmm. To, no,
1: I mean, um, I, I mean, that resonated with me completely. You know, one of the things that uh, we talk about here at Good Faith Media is the importance of leaving what has been defined as a biblical worldview uh, in the past, and embracing what we call a Jesus worldview, our colleague Johnny Pierce uh, kind of coined that phrase around here, uh, because we can take the Bible and we can take the stories and narratives and teachings and exhortations of the Bible, and we can pretty much prove whatever we want to prove uh, using those texts. But the most important for most important person. In the world for us Christians is the person we call Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. And everything that we interpret must flow through His life and His teachings. And you're exactly right when you say uh, He, uh, his part, the part of His liberation work was rejecting these systems of power uh, to, I mean, to the hilt. That's what got Him crucified for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, I think you. You just you hit the nail right on the head in this chapter hierarchy. It's chapter three, and it is okay. it's absolutely wonderful uh, as you, you unpack this for us. And so I, I, kudos to you for, for writing about it and calling it out.
3: Thank you. Well, again, my hope is that people would read it, but we'll see. I mean, if people—the introduction is enough for people to decide whether or not they're going really <laughs> to keep reading or not, I think. Um, yeah. But hopefully people— you know, who, who need it, who are kind of in a shift of paradigms would, would just keep reading, even if it's uncomfortable. Cause I try to write very compassionately and openly.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. You did mm-hmm. a great job. And I, and I really appreciate all the personal stories uh, that you added, uh, into, uh, to each chapter. I, I thought that was a, a really nice touch because it did, um, Provide a a humanness to to these topics Mm -hmm. that sometimes we talk about at a 30,000-foot level, and then we forget these are real. This plays out in everyday life. And so I thought you did a great job with that.
0: Thank you. So in part two of the book, you leave deconstruction and address the opportunity to step into one's own power. You talk about eight different ideas individuals can step into, such as abundance, goodness, the divine, feminine, and others— why is it important for people to take steps out of deconstruction and into something positive that you can't just spend your whole life deconstructing? You have to build something back.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I, as a pastor for the last, I mean, I've been a pastor at this in the same context for 10 years now. Um, and I've been watching for, me, for the bulk of those years, people deconstruct and what I have learned from someone watching this kind of on a, years long and larger scale is that a lot of people deconstruct and then they have nowhere to land. Mm -hmm. They just strip everything away and then there's nothing. And then they just leave their faith behind. And so my desire for people is because deconstruction is hard work. It's the road less traveled and it's lonely um, and it's scary but my desire for people is to know that there is so much goodness beyond, and that our work is not just stripping away, but laying a foundation uh, for ourselves and having a place to land when we strip away all the all the things we're, we've been deconstructing. And so, yeah, I think I just I want people to know that that there is this space and. Mm-hmm. There is solid ground and Mm -hmm. there is, um, yeah, a groundedness that we can still have in our faith, even with a lot of uncertainty and mystery.
0: Yes. And, you know, you, it sounds like you have a background in sort of like social work and mental health work. And um, I've been working with a therapist for the past year and she's really called me out on my all or nothing mindset about things, especially when it comes to traumatic places and traumatic things that it's, you know completely you just completely cut people out of your life or you're completely enmeshed and it's unhealthy and deciding that as a person who's almost 40 that I can I can define my boundaries and it doesn't have to be all or nothing and I think applying that to faith as like tricky and triggering as that can be for people who've been harmed by their faith and people in their faith um, I think it's, there's goodness and there's life and there's light. And even when you want to walk away, um, God just keeps pulling you back in and it's annoying sometimes. <laughs> 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 I'll just be real honest. And yeah. You heard it
1: first here, folks. Uh, mm-hmm. Autumn That's just right. said God's annoying.
0: That's <laughs> getting on the nerves a little bit. She's cool with it. She knows. <laughs>
2: Yeah,
3: I think it's just that non-dual posture that we need, and we're not practiced in. It's mm. not that we can't do it; we're just are we're just typically not practiced in it in any part of our society, and also especially where it's useful, which is within the church and within our faith um, paradigms, is is that yeah, that non-dual ability to hold things in tension, mm-hmm. to sit in the paradox, to sit in the uncertainty, and to not think that there's something wrong because you're there and existing there is, is hard, but it's not impossible. It just takes some practice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah. Very, very well said. And I think this is, this is, uh, probably your follow-up book because there's so much deconstructing going on right now. And, uh, You know, people, I think over the last decade, especially within the church, and we're seeing it, and I think really the pandemic kind of revealed this within the church. Um, You know, we're writing about it, we're hearing about, you know, people who are just leaving the church behind and uh, just walking away uh, because they have discovered that a lot of the things that they have been taught throughout their their life— may not necessarily be accurate. And and so, as they deconstruct all these things about their faith, they're having a difficult time stepping into something that is positive and that is rebuilding something in uh, that is stronger and healthier, honest, authentic, genuine, uh, missional, uh, which I don't really like that word, but Use it anyway, <laughs> but uh, uh, but you know what I mean. Um, and so I, you know, I, I, I really like this section because it does give us something positive to, to look towards as we enter into this uh, season of discon- or deconstruction. Then we enter into a season, and, and I don't think you ever stop deconstructing. You're always trying to learn more about yourself, uh, but uh, you're you're trying to build something. I think you do a brilliant job this uh, of this in the book. So well done. Uh, it's just it's just a great great book. So. And you can pick up the book. The book is entitled, A Brown Girl's Epiphany, Reclaim Your Intuition and Step Into Your Own Power. It's currently available, right, Aurelia? It's,
0: it's pre-order.
1: It's pre-order. Okay, the so pre-order
0: wh- helps your book sales. So we pre-order. encourage you to click the link and pre-order pre-order is so important. So pre-order I on
1: that. Amazon, anywhere else? Anywhere. 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 Okay.
3: You can, so, go to, you can go to Indie Bound. You can go to Amazon. You can go to Barnes and Noble. You can go to Walmart. Uh-huh. You can pre-order it. Um, it comes out September 13th. And if you pre-order it, you'll receive it in the mail that week.
1: Perfect. Awesome. So as soon as you click Off on this podcast, go to one of those sites that you buy books and pre order a brown girl's epiphany. You will not be disappointed, I promise you. Mm -hmm. So, Aurelia, so before we let you go, because this has been delightful, we could talk more and more about the book, and there's so much more in the book. That's why you have to buy it. But before we let you go, we ask every guest a final question, and Autumn always has the pleasure and honor. Of asking our guests the final question, so Autumn, take it away.
0: Our tagline at Good Faith Media is "There's more to tell." So, in light of your beautiful book and our conversation today, Aurelia, what is your more to tell?
3: Well, I have been thinking about this because you did give me a little teeny tiny <laughs> heads up, um, and I think I want to share. If if anyone's on Instagram, to go follow me there at Rev Aurelia Joy. Um, I set an intention for myself at the start of the year to write more poetry. I think poetry is really healing and I'm not, I don't think I'm good at it. I don't think I have anything, uh, novel to say, but I think it's just been an important practice for me to just continually write something down every single week consistently and, um, And to put it out there, even if I don't think it's good, just hone my creative and healing skills and work in one. So on Instagram, every single week, I'm putting out a reel, a video of spoken word that I have created. Um, And some of it I call spoken word exegesis because I'm reimagining theology. Um, And then some of it is just storytelling. But it's kind of my favorite thing that's been grounding me all year long. And I've been doing one a week all year. So.
0: We'll okay. have a link to that Instagram account in our show notes as well as a pre-order link for the book. Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Fantastic. Well, Aurelia, thank you so much for being with us today. It has been a complete joy. For those of you in the Austin area, make certain you check out Peace of Christ Church. You can find them at peacewillco.com on the internet, and visit, because it is a great, great congregation. In fact, one of our employees at Good Faith Media is a member, our managing editor for digital news and opinion, Zach Dawes. And so make sure you, you know, when you walk in to, to give him a big hug, because he's a Big hugger.
3: (laughs) Not just a member. He is our treasurer. He's on our leadership team and he pretty much keeps things running. (laughs) That's how we
0: feel about him around here. Exactly. (laughs) That's exactly
1: right. Uh, Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It's been fabulous.
3: Thanks, y'all. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, Reverend uh, Aurelia Pratt is pastor at Peace of Christ Church in Austin, Texas, and her new book, A Brown Girl's Epiphany, is available for pre-order. So make certain that uh, you pre-order it right after you sign off uh, this episode. And to our listeners, we want to thank you for joining us this week. As always, we appreciate you tuning in. And until next week, keep living good faith.